So this morning, being aware, it's like this. You may be wondering where Arjuna Soko is. <laughs> and he has something in his in his eye that is I think it's his right eye, and so he's uh, got a bandage over it, and he's resting this morning. But even if you've got something in your right eye and you're resting, you can still be aware. So, don't worry about him. So the body's like this, you know, just in this, during this retreat, we've been here a week now, this is Friday, and uh, just observe the result of living in this, with the eight precepts and the, the kind of uh, focusing on the Awareness, being aware, being the awareness itself, refraining from chit-chat, talking, getting caught up in, in, uh, worldly conditions, worldly thoughts. You begin to experience the reality of consciousness as peaceful. And that's your true nature. If, when I talk about when I was a student in Berkeley, you know, going, protesting the Atomic Energy Commission with peace signs, and then realizing, you know, while carrying a sign, you know, big sign saying peace, you know, I began to kind of awaken the fact that I didn't know what peace is myself. So <clears throat> here I am you know, protesting, wanting other people, wanting the government or whatever to be peaceful when when I'm not peaceful. So this is like an awakening insight. I consider that an important insight. Suddenly, instead of blaming my lack of peace, my confusion and so forth as a individual person, on, you know, because the government isn't what I think it should be, or, you know, all kinds of ideas I might hold, begin to see that, that peace is our true nature. And once you begin to realize that, then what, how the world moves and changes isn't, isn't, you're not making demands on it that it can't provide. The world is not peaceful. It's, it's nature's to change. <clears throat> and the world is, you know, individuals with different views, different opinions. 
So there's any endless conflicts because we don't all have the same view, same opinion about what's right and wrong or political views or social, religious views. But peace itself is not, you know, it's not something that is personal. It's not like you can make yourself peaceful as a person. When you're trying to get peace and make your mind stop thinking and you know, imagining some peaceful state or remembering, holding memories of peaceful meditations and then you can see the desire to to get peace again. Trust yourself to just be aware of that desire to get something you don't have because you, you're identifying with the thinking or emotional confusion that you're experiencing in the present, you want to get rid of it. So the direction is always awaken awareness here and now. Peacefulness in the future is an ideal. It's an, you're imagining being peaceful in the future. That's an image you create of peace. That's not peaceful. Like the idea of peace is itself, you know, a sankara, and it arises and ceases. So you can't sustain peaceful thoughts for very long. So in this retreat, it's like, you know, encourage you to realize your, your true nature is peaceful already. It's not something you lack or some people have and other people don't. It's just seeing through the unpeacefulness of habit patterns, thoughts, memories, likes and dislikes. So the, you know, the, the key to unlock the prison cell is awareness. That's Bhutto or Buddha. Not the word, I mean, the word is, is, you know, a condition. But the reality of being aware. And so when, Refuge in Buddha <clears throat> isn't just a, an imagined refuge and, uh, you know, some kind of metaphysical Buddha. But it's awareness here and now. So this is a, you know, the, I used to feel like, um, when I, when I operate from the personal view, from my conditioned personality, when I talk about the f- first three months as a Samanera where I'm just feeling all this anger, resentment, negativity, 
and something in me, you know, some kind of intuition, instead of trying to get rid of it, which I tried to do in the beginning, trying to to suppress these negative thoughts, negative emotions, through meditation technique, concentrating on the rise and fall of my stomach, my abdomen, and then, you know, then I'd be overwhelmed with, you know, I could do it for a while, and then the mind would wander. And then being alone in, in a kuti, you know, with uh, no distractions available. So the first time in my life I was in a situation where I, I couldn't just, you know, eat food or have a drink or or listen to the radio or watch television or use the telephone. You know, none of this was in the monastic life. You had one meal a day. That was the most exciting part of the day. And then uh, the rest of the time you're with yourself. Nobody to talk to. What are you going to do? You know, and then you try to do a meditation technique that you've been taught to do, but you have no insight into what you're actually doing. Then I found the the repressed anger of 30 years, repressed negativity. So it was like repression is like locking these negative prisoners inside you every time a negative thought or angry thought or whatever arises in consciousness you 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 slam the prison cell door on it. You won't let it out. You're trying to to get rid of it or keep it locked in because you're afraid of it. So then the kind of intuitive response that when I no longer could control my mind, I just, in through through meditation technique, I had to just sit there and open the prison cell door and let all the miserable prisoners that I've been in, that they've been incarcerated in me for 30 years out. So it was like, you know, in, in meditation, when you do have these, these experiences of a lot of negative and repressed feelings, see them in terms of a cleansing process. It's not personal. It's not like you're <clears throat> you're going crazy or there's something bad that you you know when you identify with negativity you take you see it as something wrong with yourself. But in the puto, in the knowing, in awareness, negative states they're impermanent, they're sankaras they're not self. So mindfulness is allowing, you know, like opening the prison cell door and letting all the prisoners out because they're going away. So they come through consciousness, you know, so you're, the uh, anger or 
fear and things arise in consciousness. And then if you see it as some kind of personal and take it personally, then you're going to slam the door on them again. You're going to repress those feelings. Or you can do the opposite. You just uh, reinforce the feelings. Reinforce the anger as justified and everybody else is, and the whole world is against you and it's the world's fault. That's a kind of madness where you just indulge in anger and resentment or you try to repress it. So there's a kind of two extremes, indulgence and resistance. Gama sukali yoko atta kila matano yoko in the Dhamma Jaka Pavatana Sutta. Buddha said the Dhamma is the Machima Bhatibhata, middle way. Gama sukali yoko is indulgence. Atta kila matano yoko is resistance. Where awareness isn't about, is not indulgence or resisting, it's knowing. So by letting these miserable prisoners out of the prison of my mind, you know, then I had this experience of luminosity and non-anger, non-resentment, non-fear. That's the reality of consciousness, you know, that the veil that hide, you know, the, the uh, mental states are veil and hide consciousness. So even though it's always peaceful, we, we grasp or resist the conditions of the, of the mind, the thoughts, the memories, the body itself, and so we get caught in the turmoil of changing samsara, of the worldly cycles, condition patterns of behavior. And that's the cause of suffering. So getting back to the first noble truth, there is dukkha, there is suffering, Then I say it's it's a noble truth to be understood. It's not a metaphysical truth. It's not ultimate truth. So that's why it's 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 pointing at, at itself. You know, where uh, is suffering? Just a uh, you know when you think of who's causing me to suffer. This is like reflection, the way it is, like this. Thinking is not reflective, it's, it's the, you know, creating thoughts, judgments about the way it is. So thinking is, a, and when we say it's like this, this is a reflective statement where, you know, it's too hot or too cold or, you know, this we come when we think about the way it is, 
then we're not reflecting, we're merely criticizing or describing. So this word reflection, picharana in Thai, they say, picharana tam, is being the puto, the witness, the observer. It's like this. So, what you feel right now, physically, you know, the posture is like this. So sitting, you know, you're reflecting on the experience. The experience you're having, that everybody's having at this moment, is sitting, is like this. You're not thinking about how you're sitting. You know, it's not about whether your posture is good or not very good or whether you're sitting in a chair or on a mat. Then you're thinking and then you're holding ideals about if you're really a good meditator. You know, the ideal is, is lotus posture. Lotus posture where, you know, that most people can't manage these days. That's an ideal posture. So, you you know, if you're holding this ideal posture image and, and your existing posture not doesn't fit the ideal, then you feel you can't really meditate. You go into a whole realm of doubt and and make problems about just the posture. Can you meditate as well uh, sitting on the floor or on a chair? You know, so, you know, this is, can, can you really practice meditation sitting on a chair when the, the ideal posture is sitting on a mat in full lotus? Now these are thoughts, aren't they? They're, they're ideals, they're stereotypes, Buddha images, you know, the Buddha's images are sitting there in full lotus or in Katsamon in half lotus. You know, notice the Buddha Rupas are icons. You can make images of Buddha but Buddha in reality is awareness. So, you know, this way we can relate to Buddha because it has a human form. It's an it's a iconic form, an ideal form. And the West, Western culture, has never produced an ideal form of a human being. You know, the, the sculptures, the, you know, the, the religious symbols, are not about a human being sitting in perfect, you know, in in straight posture, eyes open, not shutting the senses out, not like the three monkeys hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. It's it is not you know, putting tape on your mouth, plugs in your ears, and closing your eyes. Buddha's images, their eyes are open. There, it's a icon of mindfulness. It's a, it's an exaggerated human form. So you have flames coming from the top of the head and so forth. These are iconic, uh, 
additions to the human form. The Dhamma, you know, when we take refuge in the Dhamma, it has no form. But we identify with the form of, you know, our own form, our own bodies. So form is is important to recognize. We start with the form, with Bhutto, with awareness. And then the, the Buddha Rupa, the, at the time of the Buddha, the Lord Buddha in India, there were no Buddha Rupas. They came in later. And I've known Western monks or Western Dhamma teachers who, you know, are against Buddha Rupas because they didn't have Buddha Rupas at the time of the Buddha. And, and they're just idols that you, worship. But that's not the point of an icon, it's not to worship it or project magical powers or perceptions of Buddha onto a Buddha Rupa. It's a reminder, isn't it, of Bhutto, Bhutang Sarnangachami. When you look at Buddha Rupas, you know, then you be, you see, you know, you get caught up in worldly thoughts, worldly activities, problems, family problems, and so forth. And then you look at a Buddha Rupa, you, you know, let it be the, the, the catalyst to remind you to take refuge in awareness rather than just be caught in the momentum of your emotions and, and habit patterns. So it's how how you want to use Buddha Rupas, Buddha images, Dhamma images, because we can relate to Buddha images as, because they're human form. But Buddha knows Dhamma, so mindfulness knows reality. And reality isn't a form, it's here and now, timeless, it's invisible, but it, it's the reality of knowing, of awareness. So religious icons, you know, in Christianity you've got the crucifixion, where, you know, is brought up as a high Anglican, a very, in, the, in America, the Episcopal Church, a very high church form of, of Anglicanism, which, you know, the, the crucifix is the kind of image that you, confronts you all the time. The human form of Jesus, nailed to a cross. What does that, how does that affect you? You know, it has an effect on your mind when you see it as a religious symbol. It's the human form in the state of agony, nailed to a cross, which is, you know, something that's certainly the expression of the first noble truth, there is suffering. 
And then one time I was in uh, Paris near the Eiffel Tower and uh, all these huge images, monuments to queens and kings and warriors and heroic forms, men, for you know, beautifully formed statues in bronze of men, you know, with, with weapons and muscles and, and showing power and strength. That's a, a worldly icon, isn't it? Then of the women, um, the statues of women were usually queens in the kind of haughty poses, looking very arrogant and bossy. So, you know, these are, they're beautifully, you know, artistic work, they're works of art. So these are the, you know, uh, idea of kings and warriors and queens, people in power, men and women in power, tend to, you know, powerful symbols of strength and high position. How do they affect consciousness, you know? Then near there is the Gimei Museum, which has a beautiful collection of Asian sculptures and have one of beautiful collection of Khmer Buddha Rupas, Cambodian Buddha Rupas. So after going looking at all these statues in the parks around the Eiffel Tower in Paris, you go into the museum, Gimei Museum, and then the, you know, you have these, you know, the Khmer the old Khmer civilization, they sculpted stone. And some of these Buddha images that the French stole from Cambodia. <laughs> and they have very well lighting, you know, on them. So they're very calming, you know, they, they represent peace and calm, coolness. So it is, you know, in in the this sense of the human form, the Buddha Rupa as a human form, a mindful, composed state of awareness, is, you know, think of it like that, rather than seeing it in terms of aesthetics. Sometimes, you know, we become, some Buddha Rupas are, we like and think are beautiful and others we don't like because they aren't beautiful. But the point is whether they're aesthetically pleasing or not is, is the, the, the reminding ability of a Buddha Rupa is wake up and be aware. So it's not a image that you, you know, you you can Imagine, you know, that there's all kinds of special powers in Buddha Rupas. We can, we can project anything you want onto them. But in skillful means in meditation is to see them as, as icons, or reminders, or refuge, Bhutang Zarnangachami.
So when we take refuge in Sangha, Sankang Zarangdhatami, it's like direct practice. Ujupatipano, one who practices directly. Insightfully. So that's a, you know, in the sense of Sangha, you can, you know, the external, we see the bhikkhu Sangha, the monk sitting here representing the bhikkhu Sangha wearing robes, shaven heads. But you don't take refuge in the bhikkhu Sangha. You know, like you don't take refuge in a Buddha Rupa. Or sometimes people think the Dhamma is a bookcase with the Tripitaka in it. So, you know, when you go into a temple, you see Buddha Rupa, you bow to the Buddha Rupa and to the bookcase filled with books. Or you bow to the Sangha, the, 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 the monk. These are external, you know, these are still sankharas. So, supatipano, ujupatipano, yaya patipano, samiji patipano, these are the, when we reflect on Dhamma, it's direct practice, insight, reflection, observing the way things are. And this reflective ability that human beings have is the key to the door, you know, the the gate to the deathless is open. It's this mindfulness that is the the door, the, the escape hatch from just being caught into the habitual patterns of thinking, of self-views, of emotions, of love and hate, like and dislike, fear, resentment. So in this, talking about direct practice, you know, it's what I've been encouraging during this past week. Which is here and now, isn't it? Mindfulness is here and now, it's not developing mindfulness. It's not about trying to become mindful, but being mindful. So this is where, you know, entrusting yourself, trusting awareness. Even if your mental state is confused or all over the place, you're full of wandering thoughts or negative feelings, you know, take this sense of the direct practice, it's like this. Being totally confused and and that is like this. Having all these negative feelings is like this. This is direct. It's not judging, it's not trying to get rid of or change anything, but recognizing that emotions are like this. 
feelings are like this. They change, you know, none of them, you know, are permanent. But this awareness, you know, is the, is the thread that is permanent where the beads on the thread can come and go and change. So this is why it is a refuge. It's not a temporary refuge, a shelter, you know, that you have to, that's going to desert you when the storm comes. But it's a permanent refuge as you rest in it, as you abide in awareness, trust awareness. And, and if you're going to identify with any, identify with awareness rather than your thoughts. You know, if you need an identity with words, you can think, I am this awareness. This awareness is, is a refuge. But when you think, I am the body, then you're subject to uh, heat and cold and old age and sickness, death. And so is the body something that you really want to take refuge in? Or your habit patterns, your emotional habits, you know, they're subject, you know, the eight worldly dhammas, you know, life in the world, in society, in family life, and all is about praise and blame, success and failure, happiness and suffering. So is it how to integrate, how to be mindful in daily life? You know, this is like a retreat, 10-day retreat is like being spoon-fed. It's everything's arranged and you just follow the schedule and you're, you're silent. You don't have to socialize or you know, your social obligations are just to be silent and still. Where in daily life we have to live with families, with our workers in the society the way it is, in the world. We hear about endlessly of news and not very, you know, inspiring news of what's happening in the world. So, you know, then this is the condition realm. In Pali, they call it samsara-vata, the endless cycles of habit, of conditioned phenomena, being born and dying, renewing themselves endlessly. So when we want peace in the world, you know, that's a good ideal, 
We all like to have a world peace where everybody gets along and cooperates and shares. They have dana baramita. They're generous. They share what they have with others. They're they're morally uh, dependable. They keep the five precepts. They meditate. They're mindful. That's the ideal world that we can create with thoughts, with with the ability to perceive the very best of a human condition. You know, so that's, you know, like the Buddha Rupa is an example of the very best of the human condition, the human form sitting in, in a awareness, like in the Buddha Rupa here in the Sala, you can, you know, no matter what happens, if somebody gets murdered or there's war and the other Buddha Rupa doesn't, you know, is not reacting to, to the actions that, that are taking place in front of it. But a Buddha Rupa is made out of bronze, brass, stone, and so forth. So it can only, you know, it, it doesn't have to deal with feeling, with sensitivity. Where all our lives, being in this human form, it's about sensitivity, it's about feeling. So we call it the sense realm. The senses, the eyes, ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. So in this encouragement to take your stand with awareness, I'm emphasizing this, you know, to leave this kind of, because this you can take with you into daily life, into busy life, family life, working life. Being aware of how your family affects you is like this. Being aware of how your, your, in your workplace, the people around you, the people in charge or the employees is like this. So it's not, it's not kind of accepting or approve, it's not like approving of the way, it's not a kind of blinding yourself by or fooling yourself or deluding yourself but at this moment this very moment here and now this moment can only be like this well I'm sitting here it's like this and so I go into the reflective mode It's like accepting the way it is, whether it's, you know, it's peaceful or confusing or I like it or don't like it, it's like this. In my experience as a monk and being head of the Sangha, being a Jawawat, an abbot of monastery, you know, you you have ideals of the perfect monastery. 
Yeah, I remember when I first, first year at Wat Pa Pong with Lung Pa Cha, I kind of idealized Wat Pa Pong. When I first went there, I didn't, I idealized it. And this is, you know, my, I, I created my ideal monastery through that first year at Wat Pa Pong when it was, you know, it was not, it was a pretty rough life, you know, it was no electricity and so forth, but the, the kind of, uh, quality of, and the encouragement of the, of the practice of the monks of Lung Po Cha. And because I couldn't speak Thai or Isan dialect, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I kind of created my own ideal Wat Pa Pong in my mind. And then as I learned the language and then became more aware of what was actually going on, I became critical. The critical mind came over, you know, because the critical mind comparing it to the ideal I formed in the beginning, which was based on inspiration, But Ajahn Chah kept, you know, this sense of being aware rather than trying to hold things to a standard, an ideal standard that you imagine. Like Lung Po Chah could adapt to change. When, when we went to England together in 1977, you know, I was curious to see where he was so respected. We spent a week in Bangkok before we flew to London and people were coming and bowing to him and, and you know, people were so polite, so respectful in Bangkok. And I thought, it's not going to be, it's not going to be re- treated like that in London. I wonder how he'll react. <laughs> you know, is he dependent on this external respect and this cultural tradition? Or what? You know, I was curious. So I had the good fortune of traveling with him. First time on an airplane. And uh, we had, we flew at that time Thai International. Flew, you didn't have direct flights from Bangkok to London, so you had to, it would stop in Karachi and Pakistan, and then it would fly and, and land in Rome, and then from Rome to London. So, Ajahn Chah and I were sitting together, and, uh, you know, he was, he seemed quite interested in what was going on, his first flying on an airplane. First time to go to a foreign country, and so we landed in Karachi at night, and then taking off, you know, from Karachi airport, one of the tires on the landing gear exploded. So, we, we got off the ground, flew up there, but when we 
came to Rome, we had to prepare ourselves for a rough landing. You know, so we, we had to take all these precautions. Lumpo tried to remove his false teeth. <laughs> and we had to, you know, have our seat belts on and, and lean on the, the seat in front of us. And there was this kind of anxiety and people on the flight to Rome were, you know, they look, Paul, pray for us. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of, we didn't know quite what was happening, why, why all this emergency, uh, was happening. And I had to explain it to Ajahn Shah. And so then, they, we, we had to fly over the Rome airport where they identified that one of the tires on the landing gear was flat, you know. So they landed with a flat tire, just, it was a bit rough, but it was not dangerous. <clears throat> so after we landed, Ajahn Chah and I stayed till everybody left the plane and, and then, uh, and we had to leave the plane, you know, do, and wait in a, in a transit lounge in Rome. And, and Lumpur Chah were watching people leave the plane, and they forgot all about Lumpur Chah. <laughs> and they were, you know, and the, the pretty hostesses were saying goodbye. And that, Lumpur Chah said, that's human nature for you. When you're in trouble, they look to the monk. <laughs> When, they, when there's no danger, they look to the pretty woman. <laughs> oh, he did have a great sense of humor. So then, you know, we, we disembarked from the airplane and we had to get into one of these, these buses, you know, that, that meet, that take you to the transit lounge. <clears throat> and, because we were the last ones off the plane. They had to, you know, they were, there's only standing room only. And there, you know, in the Thai etiquette, you know, where monks weren't supposed to, you know, be that close to women physically. And in Thailand, of course, it's taken for granted. That's, uh, you know, the Thai culture is, is, insists on that, but in Rome, you've got to do as the Romans do. <laughs> and I watched Lumpur just before he, he stepped up onto the, the, the bus, and he looked, and he gave, you know, he was mindful of the situation, and then he just walked right in to the crowd, no problem. So, you know, I began to see that Lumpur could adapt to different situations. He wasn't dependent upon everything being, you know, done in a certain way. And his experience in, in London, and it, we took him to Edinburgh and places like that. It was just interesting to travel with somebody who had such an interesting way of interpreting experience. Because you know, being Western person myself, there's so much you just take for granted in your own 
society, but Lung Po Chao would be curious why did they act like this? They noticed how people walk in London and in Edinburgh and so <laughs> and, and you know, and it's quite different from the way people walk and act in Bangkok. But you know, you never really I never really contemplated the difference because you you know, when you're you take so much of your cultural conditioning for granted. But Lung Po Cho was seeing it through eyes that had never been in a European country before, never been out of Thailand. And he he was interested. He wasn't afraid. I never detected any fear or aversion. He seemed to adapt to to the out of necessity and out of respect for the country he was in. So this is mindfulness wisdom. Knowing time and place, being aware of the way it is, isn't always going to be the, the way you want it. But because of this intuitive awareness, we adapt, we can adapt to changing conditions. We aren't going to be upset or depressed or frustrated because things aren't the what, the, the what we're used to. So in daily life, you know, realize that you, it's not going to be a 10-day retreat when you, when you leave here. But it is the way it is. And in that way, you know, we can, we can make suitable adaptations to change out of wisdom. You know, because this is, this is the ability of, of human, of our humanity to, to, you know, to see through the illusory conditions that we create in our mind to be able to respond, to adapt to changing conditions as they happen physically, as we get older, as we, as our children grow up, as the society changes. You know, there's so much of, you know, people talking about Thailand isn't what it used to be. People, you know, monks, or I've heard so many people contemplate about, uh, you know, the young generation doesn't have the respect for the Sangha it used to have. And, and uh, you know, Thai Buddhism, it's you know, complaining about scandals, about monks and so forth. We, we create, you know, this sense of, at previous time, Thailand was ideal. And now it's changing and the younger generation doesn't have the, the, the manners, the, the same respect for the Sangha, the same respect for elders as my generation or my parents' generation. This is, this is, you know, this is complaining and observing and it might be true, you know, it's not complaints based on nothing. But to, to 
see that we can adapt to the changes because now like Thailand's modern country it's not just a rice growing agricultural society like it was and uh, and it's been influenced by western values western education western ideas so it's like this I'm not saying that you know that it you can't return to what it was that you remember like I'm back in the 1950s in my youth when I was young we used to complain all the time about how boring life was how everything was stuck in a kind of dead end in American society and we you know then we you know we were young and idealistic and we we saw the, the kind of narrow-mindedness of our christian parents and and the kind of attitudes of like especially white middle-class christians were very kind of dull and boring to to me especially and then the 60s came and it all changed <laughs> so suddenly you know you get people now complaining but I wish we could go back to the 50s but you know that was my youth in the 50s and we used to complain about that so you know on the worldly level there's always a lot to complain about you know, in, in the worldly conditions, because they're not going to be what we, you know, everything we wanted. But with reflective awareness and with wisdom, then our adaptations will be suitable to time and place, the conditions in the present. You can trust that. <clears throat> 